Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for week ending 1st of October 2021. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. My name's Elizabeth McCarthy. I'm the producer of the Breakfasters. And coming up on this podcast, the team talk about fish and chips. They talk to Cass Howcroft and Louise Brown about an alliance between Little Big Steps, Melbourne-based kids' cancer charity Little Big Steps, and the Deacon Melbourne Boomers. They talk to Simon Hinckley, who's a regular on our Featured Creatures segment, about species of praying mantis. They talk about the iconic Hills Hoist. Multi-award winning author Charlotte Wood joins the team to talk about her new book, The Luminous Solution. Nat Harris is a Friday funny bugger. And Bobby shares her story about coming out. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Triple R. I had my 200th picnic yesterday, which was good. I was just chatting off air about uh, my family, my brother, wife and kids that have uh, gone to, they flew off this morning to go to Austin. Um, so we yesterday we had we had a family picnic and we had um, the old fish and chips. We were talking about it, saying how in the sunny weather, everyone's just out having fish and chips. And mm. I'll tell you what, it was a good one. Um, but my dad, he just had the typical order. He's like, yeah, you want to go get some fish and chips? And everyone was sitting down. He's just like... $10 for chips, 10 potato cakes, 10 dim sims, <laughs> half a dozen flake. Here we go. <laughs> like, okay, so that order hasn't changed in 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a classic, although I'm jealous of... Um, I'm je- jealous of the ease of that order. Like, no one orders fish and chips like that anymore. <laughs> I know. I know. It, it did make me laugh. I'm like, oh, I don't think anyone has flake anymore. Um, and, yeah, so then we kind of had to ask a couple other people. So there was a burger in there. There was a souvlaki. And then the kids were like, oh, I want steamed dim sims. I want this. Like, okay. So it changed up a little bit. Um, but it did make me laugh. Just the – he's just thought of fish and chips. That's the order. Here's your 50 bucks. Give me the change. Um, <laughs> but what about the, um, like, the pickled onions? that you'd see in a fish and chip shop in the jar. Have you or anyone you've known oh, ever ordered them? Mate, you'd love them? Andrew, really? uh, if I come back without the pickled onion, I have really? to return for it. Yeah. In <laughs> fact, so he eats, I think it's because he's not a big fish fan, but he'll order fish from um, the fish and chip shop yeah. and we'll occasionally get a flake, uh, but grilled, not fried. Of course. But he eats, he takes a bite of that onion and then a bite of the flake and a bite of the onion, a bite of the really? flake. Yeah, and so often the fish and chip shop forgets it when you order it. So you say, and a couple of pickled onions. I just don't think that people order them very often. Yeah. That when I yeah, when I go to pick it up, I have to go, uh, and did you include the pickled onion? <laughs> and they give you this little plastic bag with a wet little onion in it. Cool. Delish. <laughs> I didn't actually think <laughs> Actually, I think Abby would like it. I don't know that we've ordered them though. I just thought that they were for show. Yeah, I honestly, <laughs> until I started ordering fish and chips with Andrew, I'd never knew anyone who'd ordered one yeah. ever. But obsessed. You oh, like look, them, it, you... I, I mean, I'm yes, I'm. I'm not. When they're there, I'll do it. And yeah. I, I think I like them in baguettes. They're, they're actually really delicious at the moment. Like you know, on, yeah. on baguettes or things but, like but that. But there's, as we know, there are now tears. When we were growing up, there weren't tears to fish and chip shops. No, there wasn't yeah. like a fancy. No, yeah. and there weren't chains. There weren't chains of fish and chip shops. That's right. Yeah. Whereas now you're getting platters with prawns, <laughs> like fresh prawns and mussels, and yeah. that and sort of. And it's naked, here. grilled, naked. Barramundi. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that's me. I, I always get grilled barramundi. I'm that. Yeah. And that's why if, if if it's just if I'm just buying for me, it's the first tier. Or the lowest tier. Really? You go tier one. No, sorry. And, oh, and tier I, ten. it's always dangerous talking about venues and tiers in COVID time. <laughs> well, it's funny because fish and chip shops are really showing up on the. Mm, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I'll just go, uh, you know, your dad's. Fish and chip shop. Yeah. But if it's other people, I up the ante. You know, mm. I think we, we have this fish and chip shop near us and we jumped online and the reviews weren't great. So we we're like, oh, we'll look. And we looked for a, a fancier one. And we went to this fancier one, which was, I don't know, a five-minute drive. Um, so disappointed. So dis- And so overpriced. It was just the batter, everything about it. The chips weren't great. And then we went to our local Oh, my God. I don't know who was doing those online reviews, but this was the best goddamn fish and chip shop that I've ever been to. Right. And it was so cheap. I mean, I don't want yeah. to know how often they change that butter and yeah. the oil and stuff, but the food was so much better than the fancy place. Mm. I also think your dad's right. Like 50 bucks, you don't want to go over that. My sister, no. when I was in Sydney, lived 
lives or lived in the kind of east Sydney suburbs or I don't know, it was fancy, the area. And she sent me up the road to get fish and chips for the family. And it was close to $100. Wow. for Yeah. And it was the, – the fish was like 15 bucks a pop each. And I'm like, this what? isn't fish and chips anymore. You've no. sent me to a restaurant that serves yes. fish mm. and we're getting takeaway. Like this yeah. isn't – there should be some kind of like – level where you're not allowed to call yourself a fish and chip shop anymore. And I felt like they'd surpassed oh, yeah. that. Like fancy salads. Everything was extra, extra fancy. Fancy covering on, the, like, what do you call that? Seasoning. <laughs> yeah, real fancy. Uh, yeah, chi- real fancy. <laughs> uh, chicken salt? Yeah, chicken salt. <laughs> do you guys like chicken salt or regular salt? Doesn't everyone just say yes to chicken salt? If it was an option, I'd say yes, but I never ask for it. No. I I, it's like if something comes to that, I go, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. What's his fancy seasoning? What about vinegar on chips? Uh, yeah, you'd want to be careful. But, you know, my dad used to put pour it all over his chips, but I think he did that just to stop us kids yeah, stealing his reckon. chips. Oh, how smart. It's like, how selfish. I mean, we had our own food. That we were the selfish one stealing his <laughs> But Maybe what would you call a fish and chip chop joint that's mm-hmm. more that has higher, loftier goals than your average joint? If, you, um, if it was going to be a genre, le, it, le fish et cheese. Yeah, le fish et cheese. Triple R. WNBL side the Deakin Melbourne Boomers has partnered with local cancer charity Little Big Steps and to tell us about the initiative launched during this Child Cancer Awareness Month, we're joined by CEO of Little Big Steps, Cass Howcroft and former forward for the Melbourne Boomers, Louise Brown. Welcome Cass and Louise to Breakfasters. Hi, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. Excellent. It's our pleasure. Oh my God, we're all here. Tell us <laughs> uh, firstly, well done Sarah. Tell us firstly Cass, what does, uh, what does Little Big Steps do? Yeah, so um, back in 2018, my son, uh, Lockie, was diagnosed with um, leukaemia. So we spent uh, pretty much majority of that year in at the Royal Children's Hospital. Um, during that time, um, yeah, Lockie got quite sick, was quite unwell, bedridden for um, quite a long time. As a parent, seeing a child like that is quite uh, horrific. So um, we, my husband and I decided to buy him a fit, Fitbit for his birthday um, just to try and to get him a little bit more active and out of bed. Um, you know, when you're when you're having treatment for cancer, you lose all your muscle mass, um, you become very fatigued, very unwell. So we just thought we'd have to try something to get him moving. And we got in the Fitbit and within a few days he was up and walking the hospital ward, you know, trying to get his steps up. And we gave him little incentives to get up and moving, sort of pocket money and Lego and things like that. And he loved it. Mm. And he went overnight, literally overnight from someone that was quite withdrawn and, and didn't want to get out of bed to someone who had, a, you know, a purpose. So I was talking to another cancer mum on the ward um, whose daughter, Sienna, was also having treatment for Burkitt's leukaemia. And we were, I was talking to her about this instant change in Lockie and how amazed I was that he was able to go from being someone who was quite withdrawn and not wanting to move to having sort of, a, again, a purpose. And Cindy said, well, if this could help Lockie, then surely it could help other children fighting cancer. And so that's how our little idea started. We decided that we wanted to get Fitbits onto all children throughout Australia who are undergoing cancer treatment. And while our idea initially was just to get this little piece of technology onto their wrists, we soon learned that um, it wasn't going to be enough. It wasn't. We needed. We needed help. We needed to help these kids on a bigger scale. So we um, now we fund um, physiotherapists um, and exercise physiologists in um, two major cancer centres in Australia, um, and we've also funded a research project. Um, in Melbourne. So we basically want to proactively get these kids moving. Um, and a physio physiotherapist uh, are there, um, but more on a reactive basis because there's just not enough resources around to get them to see these kids on a more regular basis. So our aim is to proactively get these kids moving and that's what we're doing. All so right. that's how we the small idea became a big idea and and here we are today. Amazing. And Cass again, what have you uh, what have you made happen here with the Deakin Melbourne Boomers? Yeah, so we partnered with uh, the Melbourne Boomers uh, this year. 
um, which is a really, really exciting initiative, um, being that we're two, um, you know, women-based organisations, which is really exciting. Um, and we just align perfectly, you know, them working with these brilliant athletes who obviously exercise as part of their daily routine um, and for us to help these kids um, get moving. So um, what we've done, having being during the pandemic, it's been really difficult for um, kids undergoing cancer treatment, obviously. They're more um, isolated than ever. Um, and although our big plans of getting the players into the hospital to visit these kids and to bring them some joy and to share their experience of um, playing basketball um, isn't able to happen at the moment. We've actually recently just done um, a Zoom call with some of the kids in at the Sydney Children's Hospital and also Adelaide and Women's and Children's Hospital. We've had some of the players, one being Lou, who's on the call today, um, join in and, and just have, have spend an hour with these kids um, just trying to lift their spirits. And Louise, you must be pulled in a million directions all the time. How come you've um, got involved with uh, Little Big Steps? Yeah, I just think something, we're part of a club here at Melbourne Boomers and we're part of a family. So kind of everything we do, we do together. So I just think it's super exciting for not only the club, but us as players as well to help out the community and be involved with the community in any way we can. And this Little Big, little big Steps is something that's so special. So... Um, yeah, it's a huge opportunity for us and, and for them as well, and we're really excited about it. What are you looking forward to? I think I'm looking forward... What I'm looking forward to most is, you know, hopefully building relationships with some of these kids. Uh, you know, as Cass said, we, we spoke to a couple of them during uh, lockdown over Zoom, so I know the idea was to potentially get into the hospitals and meet them, and we're just... I think that's what we're looking forward to most, hopefully getting into the hospitals, these kids, and, you know, if we can put a smile on their face for, for five minutes of the day, then we've made someone's day better. And I think, yeah, we're really looking forward to that and uh, it's going to be huge for us. Absolutely. And just being, being part of that call, uh, that Zoom call, you know, seeing the smiles that came from these little kids that were sitting behind a, a computer screen, it was just, it was absolutely heartwarming. And that was, you know, an hour of, hour of our day. Yeah, it's so great because I think it's really special as well because it's um, it's so big for both of us on both ends. It's it's I think for us as playing young women as young adults, it gives us so much perspective and it really grounds us and gives us an opportunity to to learn and and put ourselves outside of ourselves as well. That was going to be my next question, Louise. You know, these programs are, you know, obviously built to, to benefit the children that you're working with, but the rewards, are, they go both ways, don't they? Just your involvement in these programs must be really rewarding for you and all the other players. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that I've always been so grateful for sport in general and basketball in general itself. It's given myself and my teammates such a huge opportunity to be part of the community's outside of where I am that I probably wouldn't necessarily be in. And, yeah, I think, as you said, it's such a it's huge for both of us. And, um, yeah, I'm glad that us as players get to do something so big and so important and, and make people's days and hopefully lives just a little bit better. Cass, I mean, it's, to me it seems so strange that until now there hasn't kind of been the thought or um, maybe the funding put into children who are going through um uh, are in this situation exercising like this, this idea that exercise might be beneficial doesn't seem like that much of an extraordinary thought yet you kind of just came to it by accident by buying your kid a fitbit how, how has it kind of not been something that's been focused on until now yeah, look, I think, you know, childhood cancer survival is so much greater than what it used to be. Um, you know, back in the day when you, you were diagnosed with cancer, you know, the, the doctors and nurses and everyone there was just there to save your life. And that's what they're there to do today. Um, but, you know, back in the day, they said, you know, just rest. When you have chemo, stay in bed, rest. And what's actually happened, and it's definitely, it's it's more so happened in the adult space because there are larger numbers with adult cancer than there are child, only 700, I say only, 700 children are diagnosed with cancer for each year it is 700 more than that should be but it is such a small number so when it comes down to research it's really difficult to 
have the evidence behind it um, to prove that exercise is a safe and and okay. What we've actually managed to do is we've funded a research project in Melbourne at the Royal Children's Hospital um, by one of our exercise medicine advisory council, Sarah Grimshaw. She's doing her PhD on the benefits of exercise with kids undergoing cancer treatment. Um, and what we actually know is that it is it is safe and it is okay. But we now need the funding and we now need the evidence behind us to basically prove what we're what we're saying. Um, and that's, I guess, what our charity is planning on doing. So mm. while we're trying to get the physios into the hospitals to help these kids initially, we also want to be um, funding these research projects so that we can continue continue to do it. We can continue to fund the physios and to help them help the children. What do you observe when you see ex- when you see exercise physiologists and physiotherapists stationed in um, the, your wards around Australia? What do mm. you what makes them unique and so valuable and that we should see more of them? Well, I think, you know, I mean, what we're trying to do is we're trying to get these physios out there on a proactive basis. Like I can imagine, you know, when the resources aren't there and they're getting called by the oncologist to come and see a child who is bedridden, who can barely walk because that's what, you know, it just, they haven't been able to get there soon. It must be be so frustrating. So to put these positions in place where these, these physios and EPs can go out there proactively helping these kids. So potentially they don't actually get to the point where they're not, where they can't stand up or walk or anything like that, you know. Mm. Um, and I think for them, it's going to be a lot more of a rewarding um, experience. Um, we just hope that we can, um, you know, by putting the funding in there, it's going to enable these kids to have a better outcome long term. Yeah. Because at the moment, with the with um, the fact that survival rates are so good, it's the long term effects that we're really worrying about now. So for my son Lockie, you know, it's the secondary cancer, it's um, all the other chronic illnesses that we worry about later in life, and by for him. By him exercising and getting him moving, it's just going to help with those long-term effects yeah. potentially. Louise, when does the season start and uh, are the kids entitled to free games? They're <laughs> <laughs> absolutely entitled to free games. We're hoping to have, well, I know we're hoping to have games and days just dedicated to the kids. Um, and the season is looking to start, fingers crossed, end of November. Excellent. Um, Cass, how can listeners get involved? Yeah, well, look, as you guys know, as a community radio station, you know, and as with charities as well, it's been a really, really tough um, 18 months, you know. it's it's We rely on face-to-face fundraising, which we haven't been able to do. Um, so for us, it's, it's A, sharing the word about our charity and getting people on board, but also donations. I mean, we, we heavily rely on donations to be able to fund these positions in the hospitals to help these kids. Um, so... If any listeners out there would like to get involved, you can go to our website, which is littlebigsteps.org.au, um, and feel free to re- reach out to any of us on the team here. We'd be more than happy to, to connect with people. All right. CEO of Little Big Steps, Cass Howcroft, and forward for the Melbourne Boomers, Louise Brown. Uh, congratulations and brilliant to talk to you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having us this morning. Pleasure. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Entomologist Simon Higley joins us for Feature Creatures to um, deliver us the harsh realities of insect life. Morning, Simon. Morning. So, yeah, I thought we'd talk about uh, a little species of uh, mantid called uh, Meomantis caffra, which comes from uh, South Africa, and talk about some of the why it's sort of interesting and its its backstory. Um, so I guess everyone knows uh, praying mantids, uh, especially if you've seen um, Kung Fu Panda, had the little character mantis, which I really, really liked. And I was actually Googling that because I was trying to remember, was it Jackie Chan? And it was Jackie Chan who voiced Monkey. It was Seth Rogen who voiced Mantis. But interestingly, on the site that I looked at for the character Mantis, they had mother unknown, father unknown, bracketed deceased, which was a very clever uh, reference to the fact that a lot of people would know that uh, praying mantids often during reproduction, the female will um, consume, uh, kill and, and eat the male. So I thought that was a nice little sort of throwback to the uh, to the way that they, they tend to operate. But mantids, are, uh, most people would have seen them. They're usually green, not always, because they'll often be sort of coloured to fit in with their surrounds. And they basically have a triangular head with really, really big eyes. They have very good eyesight, obviously being a a very good predator. They need to be able to see their prey and also they need to be able to see what's trying to eat them. 
they can actually rotate their head about 180 degrees. So they have a very good field of view. And obviously what distinguishes them is their front pair of legs, which are called raptorial because they're lined with spines and they hold those front legs sort of cocked in what's called like a, I guess, a, a praying motion, which is why they're called um, praying mantids. And it's praying with an A, not with an E. So obviously they do prey on food, but they're called praying with an A because they hold their legs, their front legs in that sort of praying motion, ready to grab something that goes past. So this little species from South Africa, Mia mantis cafra, turned up in New Zealand in 1978, was either imported by somebody or what might have also happened is um, mantids produce uh, what's called an uthica, which is their, their egg case. It's sort of a like a, if you see one, it looks like a sort of a foam ball. So depending on the species, it can be round and green or it can be a bit flatter and brown, but the eggs are kept safe in that. And it may be that a mantid in South Africa um, placed an uthica on a crate and that crate ended up in Auckland. There's any number of reasons as to how that got across. But what I found really amazing was in New Zealand, there's one species only of praying mantid. In Australia, we have about, I think it's about 130, 140 species. So you've got one species for the whole country, um, now two. But unfortunately, what happened was when this little mantid arrived in New Zealand, the males of the native New Zealand species are tending to be more attracted to the South African females than the New Zealand females. Oh, no. And... <laughs> That's not great because the South African species is highly aggressive and um, cannibalistic. So not only will it eat its own, but it will also eat other species of, of mantid. So these poor New Zealand males are going up thinking that it's a New Zealand female and it's a angry South African female who they don't get to mate. Um, they're the wrong species and also they get killed. So there's... I guess some oh, anecdotal evidence lose, that if yeah. that's happening, that it will be reducing the populations of the, oh. the New Zealand species. What are you so, new? What, what are your lot up to to fix it? <laughs> well, yeah, that's New pickle. Zealand's problem. Um, no, no. But it's, it's, I just found that fascinating that they've got um, – New Zealand's such an interesting country. I mean, I think before Europeans arrived, they had like three the, – their mammal fauna – terrestrial fauna was three bat species you look at australia all the the rodents the wallabies the kangaroos the platypus the echidna new zealand's very rich in marine mammals but their their fauna on land is very interesting um almost no mammals one species amended so yes that that is causing a problem in new zealand it's probably too late unfortunately the uthica will survive in new zealand even in alpine areas so even though it's come from south africa uh, which, you know, in my mind is, is, a, is a very hot country. It's surviving very well in New Zealand, unfortunately. So it's probably too late. Oh, well, it's never too late. Um, there's a whole range of things that parasitise praying mantid uthicas, various species of wasp and stuff. So I guess in the future they might find something, some form of biological control, but at the moment they're just going, oh, well, oh, I shouldn't say that. They're not just going, oh, well. But there's probably some reductions in numbers where the two species are occurring, but hopefully... Uh, it won't turn into something sort of threatening for the species. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it then arrived in Australia, and it's a really good example of, of what we call citizen science. So basically, um, a gentleman, uh, Adam Edmonds, I think it was, in Geelong, had photographed this little mantid that he saw at his mother's place and, and put it on his Flickr account. And someone said, oh, you know, that you've got Mayor Mantis Caffron. Someone else said, no, he hasn't. They're not found in Australia. Um it ended up, he then put that image on a, a site associated with the museum and our curator saw the image, uh, went and collected one uh, and sent it to an expert in Sydney. And he's like, yep, that, that's Mia Mantis Caffra. And that's now found in Perth, Sydney and Melbourne. So the most likely scenario there again is crate from South Africa or crate from Auckland. Um, and so it's now in Australia. Uh, but what's also interesting about Mia Mantis Caffra is uh, someone's done, oh, I mean, the good, the amazing thing about that is that, um, you know, it's, it's sitting there in Geelong. The museum doesn't do field work in Geelong. No offence to Geelong, but why would we? we? We wouldn't think there's something interesting to be found, you know, in the, in the suburbs of Geelong. But the great thing about citizen science is um, there was, and someone's, people are taking pictures, they're putting them on websites that bring it to, you know, everyone's attention, and someone goes, well, that shouldn't be here. So it's, it's a really great example of how, citizen science brought this new introduced species to us mm. but some researchers in New Zealand have just done some work on this species as well and they found that it's a particularly aggressive species but it's it's basically inverted the the, the normal sort of interaction that we see between the sexes so 
a lot of people would probably know, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, mantids, the, the male is usually at risk from being eaten by the female. There's no point for the male to kill the female because then his genes don't get passed on. Mm -hmm. So the threat of being eaten is always pretty much at the male end of things. And so often, uh, depending on the species, sometimes it, it happens in other groups, not just mantids, but the males might sort of, um, you know, approach really sort of slowly or carefully. They might bring a food offering. They might sort of try and jump on her back from behind. Whole range of scenarios to not just get your head ripped off. But what the researchers in New Zealand found with this species, they put a whole lot of uh, pairs together and they found that the male will instigate wrestling with the female. So he's not sort of going to sort of sign, try and sidle up. He'll actually sort of try to wrestle with her. Because they both have these spiny forelimbs, often the female suffers damage, so she will sort of get injured in the wrestling. If the male manages to sort of pin her, he has a much higher chance of being able to reproduce and escape. If she pins him, well, then he's, he's failed and, and he's, he's basically cactus. But it was an, it's an interesting sort of inversion on the general sex thing where it's the female who's like, in inverted commas, the more aggressive mm. sex. In this one, she is still aggressive, but the males decided, well, my only chance is to just, you know, bring on the wrestling, jump in there. If we all get injured, so be it, but I might survive and get to reproduce. Yep. so it is possible to escape. It is, it is. Um, certainly the odds aren't great, but I guess basically um, in the insect world, well, as we've discussed a number of times, in nature, it's about passing your genes on. And so for the, the male, he is obviously willing to take any chance to pass his genes on. And if he ends up um, mid-reproduction having his head bitten off, mm -hmm. he's still reproducing while, the, while that's happening. So, uh, yes, but there is a chance that they, they can escape. And obviously, being a male, you want to mate with as many females as possible because, you know, you might mate with this female here and go, oh, my job's done and she walks into a spider web. So, you know, you want to mate with as many females as possible. And obviously that doesn't help if your head's gone. So it's um, it's an interesting strategy where with all their spines, they will actually, you know, sort of, they can puncture the, the female and cause damage, but they sort of go, well, you know, if I don't mate, I've got no chance. If I injure this female and she survives and I've mated, my genes get passed on. Yeah, and you say the Miamantis cafra has big eyes. Were they human? What sort of eyesight are we talking about? Oh, look, I would say their eyes are probably, mantid eyes are probably about maybe sort of a half the size of their head. So we'd look pretty freaky if we had the similar eyes. But what could we see? Yeah. That is a question, Daniel, <laughs> that I was not expecting. That <laughs> maybe you could see into um, the suburbs of Geelong. <laughs> that's right. I, I like that. Um, they, it's, it's inter Well, I guess they don't have, they have, so I think it's, like 10,000 omitidia or something. So they have compound eyes. They have a whole lot of little facets, I guess, like blowflies. Mm. So I guess they're not seeing the way that we're seeing. So it, it sort of wouldn't be like, you know, I can see Canberra from here, but it, it would be, it'd be interesting. And I'm certainly going to have a look after this. I don't just want to say something flippant because it might sound like I'm being serious, but it's, it's a really, really good question. But certainly in, uh, it's really really great because obviously they not only are they looking for prey but they're always looking for things that are going to eat them yeah and one of the other things that they do is uh if they're in vegetation and the vegetation is moving they will they will also also sort of rock with the motion because you can imagine if you're a prey item or a predator and you're sitting on the same branch everything else is moving but this green thing sitting still you're going to go hang on, something's not quite right there and either move quickly in one direction or jump on it if you're hungry. So they have a number of sort of mechanisms to, to they use camouflage. Speaking of which, there's a, an amazing species. Um, if people Google the orchid mantis from Southeast Asia, it's this amazing uh, mantis that it's white with sort of bits of pink and purple and it sort of looks obviously like a flower and things come in to pollinate it and get eaten. And it has these beautiful, the, the juveniles are like orange and black with the, the head is like a croissant, it's like a crescent shape. It's a really beautiful um, little mantid. We have lots and lots in Australia, but nothing, nothing sort of, I guess, as spectacular as, as the orchid mantis, which is uh, a really nice thing to have a look at if you, if you get a few moments online. All right, Simon, as always, fascinating and gruesome in a good way. <laughs> Catch you next <laughs> Thanks time. Thanks for that excellent question, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. 
So maybe not today, but the last couple of days have been beautiful sunshine, good for picnics, as I've already mentioned a million times, uh, but also good for hanging your clothes out. Mm. Now, um, the old hills hoist, I haven't had one of these in a while because I've been living in apartments. But I do recall when I was younger um, some of the other fun things that you could do with the Hills Hoist, obviously there to hang out your sheets and your clothes, but the old swinging around on the Hills Hoist with my siblings uh, used to be a bit of fun. I'll tell you what, they were heavy duty, these things, so heavy duty that I could be hanging off one and my brother could turn the lever and it would lift up. I mean, I was young. I was young. I was probably under 10 or something like that. But did you guys used to play on a hills hoist? Did you ever have one growing up? Yeah, they were sick. Oh, of course you would have had one on the park <laughs> for sure, sick. yeah. <laughs> oh, we had one, but the one at Grandma and Pa's was probably the best one. Yeah. On the cricket pitch? Well, you know, the backyard cricket pitch? Oh, it's not yeah. actually a cricket pitch, but... Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean on the pitch? Wouldn't that make it hard to play cricket if there's a... You can catch the ball and you're hurling around on the on the hill's hoist. So you just, like, fly off and catch it. Oh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So you'd feel next to the hill's hoist. Yeah. And use like it. someone's coming into bowl. As they're coming into bowl, just start winding up the hill's hoist, start spinning it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the walking in with the bowler. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> awesome. Uh, yeah, we used to have a heavy-duty one, so we could, yeah, it was made of steel, something, um, and it just wouldn't break. But then I think, uh, I don't know, if it was in the 90s or, or early 2000s, there were some ones that weren't as strong and we tried to play the same games and it just yeah. didn't work. Completely and if the upkeep's them. not right, that windy nature of it, the lever, it just becomes impossible, oh, doesn't it? it's the worst. And what's that lever for? Is that if you have like a particularly massive rug or something? That's what I'm thinking. Uh, well, oh. also I think put it down for my mother, it was so she could reach. Right. And then lift it up so that it actually, it could dry because she was quite short. I think she was five foot tall, just not, just over oh. five foot tall. So, um, yeah, that's what I thought it was for. Yes. Otherwise, like I had tried to put um, clothes on the line on my tippy toes. I'm just like, this is ridiculous mm. until someone told me you've got to put yeah. it down. So. I've saw people getting so uh, – lockdown was murdering their brain cells so badly that they were colour coordinating their pegs. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, do what you've got to do, I guess. <laughs> that is good. That's, I mean, yeah, that's bottom of the barrel stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a neighbour who used to steal our pegs. Really? Yeah, he used to run in and steal really? them. Just went nuts for them. How annoying. Yeah, it was a bit annoying. But it was amusing. But then I think it was only the wooden pegs. I don't know. I was going to say. Well, that, well they're the good ones. Yeah, they are good. I, I would... <laughs> You would steal them? No is that you? No way. I <laughs> What's this, your address? <laughs> I've got this rubbish uh, clothes horse that, um, I don't know, I have this terrible relationship with it. It doesn't stay up. Uh, they Clothes horses, for some reason, aren't necessarily stable or easy to use. Like, they'll fall apart. Yeah. Uh, they... they they're not good store. I don't think we've mastered the perfect clothes horse. You know, I've got a couple. Well, we've got three actually, but I've got two of the old three. school. You know, just the white ones yeah. uh, that, that you just, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but just your basic clothes Like an horse. X with a, exactly. a table on top. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that people have had for years. Have a couple of those, but then we've got a heavy duty one as well that has got multiple arms going out and it's, and, and that's not too bad as well. Um, but I am very specific with hanging clothes out and it might be an issue that I have. Um, I used to date a woman and when she would put the clothes on the clothes horse, honestly, mm. I would walk in the room and it looked like she had just tipped the laundry basket over the clothes horse. She's like, done. <laughs> that's I'm an like, awesome idea. Excuse me? What, what, are you, what are you doing? She's like, it's, it's not, that's not done. You're no. going to have to iron everything that's on this rack. Yeah. You have to take every piece of clothing, you have to flap it, like mm. really whip it and then put it on. And there's a specific way that you put it on and you've got to leave a bit of space so that they actually dry. Otherwise, it's too all, it's cramped together and it's just going to stay damp for longer. Yeah, you also can be lazy. You, if you put them all on the table then you've got and you've got clothes left over, it's like, crap, I've got to go under the table now <laughs> and reach through the clothes and dangle it. <laughs> yes. It's like wet. Like, uh. Yeah. Yes. Do you? Uh, we've got a balcony, so but uh, our balcony doesn't get any sun, so we can put them out on the balcony. But still, a day after, we it, it just takes three days for our, for stuff on the clothes horse to dry, just. unless it's like forty degrees. But like the last few days has been really nice. But because we don't get any sun, they just. I just think dry. having a clothes horse 
there's something about having a heels hoist where you do the washing and it's done and it's outside and you don't think about it unless it rains. Mm. But having a clothes horse in your house, it's it's just a reminder that there's washing. I know. It's like having a bin. It's so inconvenient. <laughs> it is a pain, yeah. No. I find it's it's a real slap in the face for apartment living. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> you don't have a balcony either, do you? So no, you... I don't. Oh. I also... So I don't have a balcony and I can't get outside to clean the windows, right? <laughs> because, you know, I'm on street level or whatever. I'm on... Anyway, I, you can't access it. And the windows don't open from the inside for health and safety reasons uh, or whatever. People. Anyway, this... I don't know if it was a wedge tag. Anyway, it's the biggest bird <laughs> shit. It's like it's oh. like someone's thrown a, a like a liter of paint. Oh no! And I've got no way to access it. So when the sun comes in, drying the clothes, there's also casts this awful fecal shadow. Oh. I'm like, get me out of here! I'm done with lockdown. That's <laughs> tough. Yeah. Well, Go, oh, going back to the. Um, clothesline i thought the the wind up wind down i thought that was like so you get the kids on like <laughs> yeah that's why they Put made it, down. it yeah yeah kids it's on. like yeah, so they can leap up. oh absolutely but what, there must be kids trashing clotheslines <laughs> oh definitely because they what so they're hanging on to the metal yeah which should be stable and it's i gather it becomes less stable the further from the center you go correct yes. uh but there would be kids who would give the wire a crack Oh, really? That is chaos. (laughs) Hang your feet off the wire, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever take a catch when you were playing cricket with the Hills Hoist? Did it ever work? I reckon I would have taken loads. Oh, you would have. You're an absolute champion, Jason. So is it it one hand off the clothesline? Because there's one hand, one bounce. Yeah, you've got to time it. (laughs) Yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Charlotte Wood is the acclaimed author of six novels, including The Natural Way of Things and The Weekend, winner of the Stella Prize, the Prime Minister's Literary Award, Indie Book of the Year, and most recently the Australian Book Industry Award for Literary Fiction. Her latest non-fiction book is titled The Luminous Solution, Creativity, Resilience and the Inner Life, a synthesis of everything she's learned about her own creative impulse since she first began writing fiction more than 30 years ago. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Charlotte, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's our pleasure to have you. Um, What can you teach people who aren't artists about cultivating a rich inner life? Well, I hope that I can teach them basically to kind of just pay attention to impulses they already have. Um, I think our culture really does not like creativity. So we're kind of... um, we are brought up to reject the new, to reject, even if we think we want creativity, it's actually really discouraged and or sort of barely tolerated most of the time because creativity doesn't depend on the strictly rational. It depends on intuitive forms of thinking and it also means a lot of failure. So uh, especially in, say, organisations, um, People think they want creative ideas, but they're not prepared to tolerate the failure that actually comes along with um, thinking of new ideas and new things. So I guess one of the first things I would suggest is that um, acknowledge that you actually want creativity in your life. And that means being really conscious of how you spend your time, what you put into your mind, what you keep out of your mind. So things like endless doom scrolling on the internet or just sort of you know how you just sit in front of well I certainly have do in front of Instagram just scrolling mindlessly through not even really paying attention so it's about initially I think just acknowledging that you need to create sort of boundaries of time and space and quality around what goes into your mind so that you can then you know um come up with new ideas and new ways of doing things. What about the idea that's like, you know, it's all well and good for Charlotte Wood. She's a genius writer and, you know, how could I possibly achieve that level of being in the zone? But how how rare is it for you to be in the zone of creativity that you crave? Oh, I'm, I'm never in the zone. <laughs> you know, it's, it's and I think most um, creative people would tell you that there's, there are two 
serious elements to living a creative life. One is to the stuff that I was talking about before, open up your mind to things that don't make sense, to the unknown, to the kind of intuitive um, workings of the mind. And the other, equally really important, is the tenacity and discipline, to stick at it, to sit in the chair when it's not working, to keep going, because it's sort of only through pushing through all the failure bit that you get to the bit that works. Mm. So being in the zone is kind of only a result of for me, and I, I know for a lot of artists and just generally creative people, whether they be a chef or a butcher or a, um, you know, an artist, to just turn up, you have to turn up. And um, I've heard a, a beautiful quote, and I haven't ever tracked down where it exactly came from, but it's visions come to prepared spirits. Mm. And that means unless you sort of invite the visions in by turning up, having a kind of routine and a practice, um, then it's really unlikely that you know, inspiration will strike if you're not sort of cultivating the ground, getting ready for it. Jace, I think he's writing that quote down. He's keeping that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good one. <laughs> That's a ripper. Uh, when, when you look back at your own writing, is there anything that you uh, have moved on from or evolved from and – you know, are there canards about creativity that you think are quite popular that you are keen to dispel? Yeah, well, I guess the main one is the whole sort of tortured artist um, stuff, you know, that you have to be miserable, that you have to live away from the rest of the world. Um, I think it's a kind of really old patriarchal idea that, that um, you need to suffer and be totally alone. And... I did some study years ago of the uh, cognitive processes of creativity and I came across this amazing um, meta-analysis. It sounds very dull, but it was really great because it was looking at 25 years of research about mood and creativity and it found that the most creative mood state, in fact, was a kind of positive mood state, um, curiosity, optimism, slightly excited, um, and, and seeking pleasure rather than avoiding pain. So the idea that you, and, and I have certainly in the past and often been really dispirited um, and gone into the writing room thinking, oh God, here I go, it's gonna be terrible, I can't do it, I'm a failure, blah, blah, blah. But what I kind of have, have come to understand is that that is for me, and according to this study, for most people, the least creative mood state. Mm. So actually going into your, whatever your project is, or you're, you know, making a cake, whatever, um, with with a sense of optimism and energy is, is, I think, a better way to go about it. Have you ever, what, when was the last time you entertained the idea of just giving up? Oh, two weeks ago <laughs> like frequently actually I don't anymore I don't think of giving up but I I think of giving up particular projects when you know I would writing a book takes a long time so you know you have to be prepared for maybe a year or two where nothing's working nothing makes sense but I know from experience now that this is just part of the process so I think a lot of people give up creative pursuits really early because they think oh it's not working and it's hard that means I can't do it anyone who makes art or does anything creative will tell you that that's just part of it not being able to do it is part of it and it's the kind of exploration and the attempting something new that actually can give you the energy um, to keep going so you know giving up is not really an option for me now but you know, the, the desire to give up is there, you know, <laughs> constantly. Um, you're right of the grumpy struggle. Uh, do you think that if uh, – how has lockdown affected people's ambitions to be writers that you've observed? Because you live very much in this world um, of, you know, feedback and cult helping friends cultivate their own mm. work. And what, do, what has the pandemic done to creativity? Yeah, it's probably made the grumpy struggle even grumpier. <laughs> the grumpy struggle is a quote from American writer Janet Burroway, where she said her writing process is uh, the grumpy struggle, the resistance to sort of get herself to the desk, um, 
the grumpy struggle, despair, and then the luminous solution that comes in in bed or bath. So it's that kind of earning of the sudden moment where you go, ah, I get it. I know what that thing means or why those two things should go together. And that's kind of the the gold really as an artist. Um, I think the pandemic has been incredibly disruptive in a way that doesn't make logical sense because, you know, when it started, I thought, okay, well, I'm just here doing what I always do. You know, I've got my office at home. I know how to work on my own. I, you know, being cut off from the world is good for writers. Um, and yet it, the general level of anxiety in the air and the absolute terror that we had at the beginning about what was going to happen, what did this mean, was really disruptive. So I know a lot of people who, who feel like I should be able to work really well under these circumstances, but I just can't. Mm. So, you know, I think we've just got to give ourselves a break and, um, you know, consolidate and get ready for you know here in sydney we are starting you know we've we've got the light at the end of the tunnel in a couple of weeks um and i think just that general anxiety in the air dropping will hopefully be really helpful uh you i think i don't mean to i don't want to miss paraphrase you but uh, you procrastinate by reading, perhaps. And how do you know when you're doing professional development and when you're procrastinating? <laughs> yes, very good question. <laughs> I probably even procrastinate more by cooking, which I've heard referred to as procrastinating. Look, you know, the way I deal with it is I could easily spend days and days getting ready for writing or researching writing or making sure my desk is all, you know, just getting it right. Um, There's a fantastic book called The Anthologist by Nicholson Baker, which is all about a guy who is supposed to write an introduction to a book of poetry and the whole book is him not writing the introduction. (laughs) It's very, very funny. But um, what I do is I have little goals, you know, little I think at the beginning when you said, oh, it's easy for you, you know, people like you to go and be a great writer. But when you start, you just go, right, I'm going to spend two hours at the desk or I'm going to write 200 words or a 1,000 words and I can't leave until I get that done. So, And then you build up to I'm going to finish this draft by December mm. or I'm going, you know, so sort of break it up into little achievable lumps. And the way to get over procrastination is just sit your ass in the chair and do it. Um, There's no other, you know, it's not going to, a perfect time will never come. You'll never have enough money. You'll never have the right place to work. You'll never, you know, time won't suddenly open up the way we always think it's going to when, you know, the kids are older or whatever. You actually have to just take charge and decide to do it. Well, a book full of these insights and more is The Luminous Solution, Creativity, Resilience and the Inner Life. It's out via Alan and Unwin and we've been speaking with author Charlotte Wood. Thanks very much for joining us this morning, Charlotte. Thanks so much for having me. Triple R. But we're blessed to be joined once again by award-winning comedian Nat Harris. Hey, Nat. Hi, guys. How are you? We're really good, but how are you? (laughs) Yeah, how am I? Look, I've been pretty, like, quite busy, I think, considering we're in lockdown. What number is this? Lockdown number six. Um, I have finally gotten into gardening. (gasps) Six locks sounds too late, but I'm very happy that you've done it. Yeah, not a bre- not a loaf of bread inside, but I've really gone into gardening. In my defence, I just moved, so I haven't had a garden previously. But it's been quite um, a revealing process for me because I'm finding it really stressful. Yeah, the Which- responsibility or the possibility. Both, absolutely, because <laughs> um, the housemates that I'm living with have basically said just do whatever you want with the garden. Mm-hmm. And I can't sleep yeah. at the moment. And all of a sudden I'm like, 
I should have been inquiring gardening knowledge like since I was born. There's, you know, not only I thought it was just like, what do you want to plant and where do you want to plant it? It's like, no, what's your gardening philosophy? You know, there's just too much to consider. And then I'm having also a lot of trouble pulling the trigger, like actually planting the seeds. A bit. Yeah. Like I've been saying to my housemates, I'm going to plant the pumpkins today for about two weeks. But I just can't do it. I'm scared. Like what if the position I've chosen for the pumpkins is incorrect? What if I am – I can't garden. I don't know. What would Digger say? Would Digger say pumpkins is super ambitious, Sarah? Uh, I mean, I feel like pumpkins is ambitious. Is it because of me? I mean, they're big. Mm. Yeah. Is it the right time of the year for them? Halloween. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. Jack-o'-lanterns. Yeah, no, I, I think you can definitely plant them now. Oh, great. Um, and I've, they need a fair bit of light, but this is the time. Do you get what you say, go herbs? Like Pardon? you can't go wrong with herbs. Mm. Yes, this is true. We've got parsley everywhere. Yeah. It's a weed. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, uh, I love it. I think where you, it gets, I think, no, I think pumpkins and zucchinis are pretty like, robust like they're pretty resilient you can't mess them up i think it's tomatoes where they get really finicky so what are we are you trying to make the house self-sufficient or are you trying to make it look i'm pretty? trying to grow a pumpkin to live in <laughs> <laughs> no i'm not it, no that's the thing as well my housemates are like grow what you like to eat i'm like i just want the garden to look nice there was already some vegetables planted so i'm just kind of like taking custody of the garden now mm. um it was amazing though. So the soil's really good. That's a real gift. Having a garden with really great soils, and there's they used to bury the compost, and it was one of the most thrilling things I've ever done. I started digging, like just trying to look for somewhere to plant the pumpkins, and there was just potatoes everywhere. Oh wow! I know it was incredible. I've never played Candy Crush, but it felt like that. <laughs> I was just acquiring more. Yeah, right. Do you reckon uh, a gnomes on the cards? Definitely, <laughs> definitely ornaments everywhere. Have you I ever think. bought an ornament? Like where? Where a do you buy a garden gnome? Yeah, you find them, I think, on the side of the road, and you repaint them. <laughs> oh yeah, massive, <laughs> definitely. I have a family massively into like ornaments, garden gnomes, big time. That's in my genetics. Sweet. <laughs> um, but anyway, aside from gardening as well, I have also some other pretty big news. Um, just the other night, I watched The Matrix for the first time. <gasps> Gee, yeah. like 20, how, wow. how old is the first Matrix? 1999, so I hope Simone didn't cover it yesterday with her film review. No. But, yeah, I watched it. And, and do you know what? I didn't even, I said to a friend, I'm like, oh, my God, I watched The, the Matrix last night. And she was like, oh, is it because the new one's coming out? And I was like, no, not at all. Um, my friend watched the Harry Potter series for the first time in lockdown, mm. like as an adult watching the Harry Potter films, and she just ripped them apart. She's like, I'm not really sure about Harry and his <laughs> motives. Like, does he not realise that everyone is under so much stress just because he's there? And I just love I just found it so, I just found it so entertaining, the idea of giving such a slanted review, like so many years too late. Yeah. So I thought that's what I'd do with The Matrix. Oh, oh great. Cool. Awesome. So hot take on The Matrix. A hot take on The Matrix. Overall, it's very Y2K, isn't it? Do you guys even remember it? Y2K Crazy. or The Matrix? Or both. both. Uh, I remember Ada... Nicologue, mm. the Home and Away actress. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yes, there's a lot of Aussies in yeah. it. Hugo Weaving. Hugo mm. Weaving, yep. a uh, the Red Peel. Yeah, it's about it. It's surprisingly very on trend now because Y2K fashion is so now this 90s look mm. that they all have. You know, I believe, just quickly, I think I was driving over a bridge near Crown Casino and there was a big mural of Lawrence Fishburne and Hugo oh, okay. Weaving. Oh, really? Yeah. You're really tapping into the zeitgeist, Matt. I was, I am really tapping into the zeitgeist and I was really like um, disappointed when I found out that it, the new film was coming out because I thought it would just be, I thought I thought it was just a bit more fun and cool if it was just random. Yeah, like yeah. 20 whatever years late, I just decide to finally Yeah, it's really chipped away, yeah, irony. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. There we go, the irony. But overall, 
overall, look, I thought it was pretty good. And look, I'm no CGI <laughs> expert or anything, but I think it holds up quite well. Yeah. And so do, do, are there any references in the world where you're like, oh, that's where that comes from? or Red pill, blue pill? Yeah, I guess the there's rabbit. that. The mm. rabbit? Yeah. But I definitely get the feeling that if this, if the Matrix wasn't like a cultural move, like movement or moment, it could have potentially been. It definitely had the sense of like a really long, indulgent one person play that yeah, some like really bright kid at uni would write. <laughs> Playing all of the parts. Yeah, I think it's all of the exposition is just nonstop. All of the monologues. I'm like, if this wasn't the Matrix, it definitely would have been a play at uni. Yeah, and it would have been like, yes, Simon's really bright. He doesn't talk much. Let's go see his play, and it just goes for hours and hours. <laughs> and it is the brilliance that it is the Matrix, but it's never really understood. And you're like, oh, and the theatre stinks of sweat. Yeah, and then you tune out. Um, I miss Simon. So, yeah. I wonder what he's up to. Yeah, oh, I You should text him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the, the, you were saying the fashion. So it, yeah. are you thinking trench coat, dark glasses? Is that in, absolutely? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm wearing it now. I'm <laughs> you surprised are. none of you have even said it. It's very striking. It. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about yeah, the bendiness the- moving backwards as the bullets fly past? Was that fun? Yeah, that was incredible. I loved it. <laughs> that really like. Um, stumped film nerds back in the day. <laughs> but have you ever looked at how they actually did it? Uh, no. no. Lots of uh, photograph uh, cameras. Sorry. No, it's actually so brilliantly lo-fi oh. that they're just all in um, green suits, like in front of a green screen. And then there's, two, oh no, they're not, but there's two people holding like mattresses or boards and they're oh. in green screen suits. Like, look up the pictures. It's hilarious. Yeah, right. Oh, my God. Of, yeah, it's quite comical. And one of the, um, yeah, and so they're just leaning back on these boards and these people in the green screen suits are just, like, <laughs> manoeuvring so it looks like they're hovering in the air. Oh, my God. I know. And I one last thing with the review, I think that <laughs> the ending, oh, yeah, this is a review. <laughs> <laughs> Got a, got a career in this, maybe. Um, I thought the ending was lame. So lame. Do I you remember I it? can't remember I can't what remember happened. It. No, yeah. no, no. Spoiler alert, but too bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah too bad. So they kill Neo, the main guy, mm. and then he's dead. And then Trinity is like, no, he can't be dead. He's the one. She kisses him and he comes back to life. Oh, yeah, that is really? lame. Really? That is lame. That so lame. Bit fairy tale. No one talking about that. Yeah. You know, like I mean, not talking about it, but it's like that should be. Yeah, it was a cultural moment. Incredible idea. Yeah. Lame ending. Love the ending. <laughs> I can't wait for you to come back and review me, myself, and Irene or something. That's what I'm. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, I love that. Jim Carrey liar, holds liar. up. Yeah, liar, 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 liar. Well, hold tight. Let's <laughs> <laughs> speak soon. Thanks heaps. Bye guys. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Later in the show, we're going to be chatting um, about a new Netflix uh, doco, Hating Peter Tatchell. I actually watched it last night um, and it got me thinking about um, just some talk topics to chat about. So I thought I'd talk about, um, because he uh, he is, was an LGBTQIA plus activist. Uh, so I thought I'd uh, chat about my, uh, my coming out story, uh, which is, you know, hopefully people don't have to have those anymore and it's becoming less and less that people have to come out and declare their sexuality uh, to loved ones or, or anyone, anyone really. Um, I'm, I'm 39 now and I came out when I was about 25. Um, I was actually, to friends and stuff, I'd, I'd come out to friends years earlier, but to family. Uh, I was living uh, overseas. I was living in Samoa actually, uh, one of the few Pacific Islands where including Kiribati, it's still illegal to be gay. It's, it's incredible. There's 71 countries, I think it is, uh, where it's still illegal to be gay. Um, anyway, I, I was there at the time and I thought I would email my parents. Uh, I had many moments in time where I was going to tell them. Mm. Uh, I remember this one specific time I was with them and 
I was just so emotional that I was I, I couldn't say it and I had tears in my eyes and my mum looked at me she's like are you okay I said yeah yeah no I just I, I no I'm fine she's like are you hungover again uh. you need to stop drinking I said no I'm not okay I'm going to work uh, and then I left uh, so that's why when when I went to I was overseas I was like no nah, got to bite the bullet I'm going to tell him so I sent them an email uh, and I, I BCC'd my two brothers in it because I was going to be gone for at least a year. <laughs> so oh. I thought, hey, here you go, guys. Uh, this is what I'm doing. If you could just manage this while I'm away. Um, and did, you, the... did your brothers know? Yeah, my brothers knew, sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they knew They knew beforehand. What was the uh, subject line? Um, I, that's a good question. I, I actually don't know. It was I, I attached a letter, um, not not... There's something you should know. It, it was along those lines. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and then in the letter, like, I, I just explained my situation and, and that, yeah, that I was gay. Um, and, you know, initially it didn't actually go down too great with uh, with my mother. My, my dad was great and I spoke to my dad quite a bit. Um, my mum, like like I'd mentioned with Kitabas, it's, it's still illegal and it's just a huge cultural she didn't fully understand the whole situation and and took it personally and thought there was something wrong um uh, so I I actually didn't talk to my mum for about three months but I remember coming home for a friend's wedding and uh I was going to be staying with another friend mum and dad are like come and stay with us I was like hell no but I did stay with them uh I I went over for dinner and I was like oh god I just was trying to avoid my mum because I hadn't spoken to her on the phone for three months and she was trying to get me alone I was like oh no oh no and she's like oh I just want to talk to you um about your email <laughs> like I was dying it's like yeah and she's like oh you know sorry I didn't sorry I didn't speak at first I you know I didn't know how to handle and she just explained you know her father was a pastor in a church and in Kitabas it's you know th- there aren't gay people or not that come out um and I said, I go, no, that's okay. I, I understand. She said, no, but it's not. I want to apologise. Um, you know, I was watching TV the other day and Alan was on TV. <laughs> I said, yes. She said, and, you know, I've been watching Alan for years. I had no idea. She is the lesbian. <laughs> I said, yes, yeah, she is the, she's the lesbian. She said, and, gosh, she's funny. I said, yeah. She said, and I love Alan. I said, yeah. And she goes, so I love you. She's like, you're funny. You're a lesbian. You're my lesbian. I love you. And it was actually oh. a really beautiful moment. Like I laughed and I cried and we hugged and and it, everything has just, well, she's since passed, but was so good after that. Uh, but, geez, it, it's just such a tough thing to, to to come out sometimes, you know, to parents and all that kind of stuff. I remember coming out to my uh, – I, I told my older brother when I was out – clubbing and and it was great and we were drunk and he's like hey my sister's a lesbian and we all got drunk and it was just such a fun thing so he added me to everyone in the club um but my younger brother he's like have you told Pete I said no I haven't actually I, I haven't but I will he's like we'll do a dinner you'll announce it at the table like it was just such a big thing it didn't need to be um but we made it this big thing but then I just got so nervous and Pete was like what is happening he knew that something was happening and everyone knew something that he didn't and I said oh I need to speak to you and he sat with his girlfriend and he had tears in his eyes he's like are you dying <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. It's just really hard for me to say. And then I just said, like, I- I'm gay. And he goes, oh, my God, I know. Of course you're gay. <laughs> She's like, I thought you were dying. But it's just, yeah, I mean, and it's it's amazing and wonderful. And, you know, people have so many different stories about coming out. And, and like I said, hopefully people don't have to do that kind of stuff anymore. Abby, my partner, she just told her dad that she was in a relationship with me and made no big deal of it she's like oh yes I've started seeing uh, this woman named Bobby he's like oh okay no worry and like you know they she just didn't make a big thing of it uh, you know she might have had a boyfriend a couple of years ago now she has a girlfriend and that's just the conversation that they had so it wasn't anywhere near as big as I made it um, but yeah you guys obviously got friends that are gay and they go through similar things or anything or yeah I mean I actually went I remember talking to you Bobby about this um it, it was funny because we were just in the car and I was asking you about this because, um, like, maybe, like, generationally there is this, I find that, like, people's coming out stories have, have changed by even five or ten years depending yeah. on things like w- what's in pop culture. And, and, and you did mention that your mum loved Ellen and I yeah. just, it made me think about how, wow, well, like, the presence of someone like Ellen when I was a kid was such a big deal. Like, I remember that being a conversation in my household, like, quite a religious 
Catholic household about yeah. Ellen coming out and um, I'm not gay, so it wasn't it wasn't a conversation about that, yeah. but it was still, oh, my gosh, this person on TV. And then to think about the actual impact of that on yeah. people, you know, um, people who did come out or wanted to come out, um, I just find that really interesting. And now you think about how many, like, queer characters are on TV and how much that might help conversations um, depending on kind of what family you're in. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about. Yeah. I think it's interesting, um, yeah, just being able – just the visibility of seeing people like you. um, It it does. Like it it was a silly, crazy moment but it did make me laugh that – Ellen was relatable to mum and just to see that, you know, everyone knows that she's gay, everyone loves her, you know, she's she's all right. Um, I liked Ellen. It was a good – this sitcom. Oh, yes. So this is – I mean, she was, I think, front cover of Time magazine. Yeah. Maybe. yeah. That was mm. the big moment. Um, and so she came out on the show. She did. Yeah. So this the show didn't run for that long, I've, I think maybe 94 to 98 or something, and yeah. launched the same year as Friends, I think. Oh, wow. So I feel like Ellen's – the sitcom has been a bit – Forgotten, no. forgotten, yeah, yeah, yeah because, of, because of what her career kind of mm. went on to become. Mm. But, um, yeah, that music that moment was just huge, wasn't it? In it pop was, culture, yeah, yeah, no, that was huge. Did you so your mum liked the sitcom? Or? No, 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 she actually just watched the um, the, the talk show. Oh, oh, the, the, Ellen, to- the talk oh, show because this is years later, yeah, 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 yeah. No, this is oh, probably 15 years ago, something like that. So she would always midday, she would love Alan, she'd yeah. dance with Alan. No, she <laughs> wasn't one of the dancers. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, so did she dance in the lounge room? Oh, mum would dance anyway. I mean, she was, <laughs> she loved it. I'll dance anyway. Not only was she uh, like, she did Pacific Island dancing, but yeah, like she would absolutely get up, she would start the dance floor anywhere she went. Yeah. Yeah, she loved Is it. Is that you now? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Like I am, at, I am just my mother's, my mother's daughter for sure. <laughs> Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>